Hello, my name is Rachel King, Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this 2020 Word Christchurch Spring Festival podcast, Dear Catherine, proudly presented by Milford Asset Management. In Dear Catherine, we celebrated 50 years of the Catherine Mansfield Montom Fellowship by inviting five fellows to write a letter to Mansfield, with Paula Morris, Vincent O'Sullivan, Bill Manhire, Carl Nixon and Fiona Farrell, hosted by myself, Rachel King. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome everyone to the final event in the piano for the 2020 Word Christchurch Spring Festival. Dear Catherine, kindly presented by Milford Asset Management and supported by the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship Fund, administered by the Arts Foundation. We pay our respects to the mana whenua of Ōtutahi, Ngai Tua Huriri. For 50 years, writers have travelled to Monton in the south of France to take up the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship. While there, they work in a studio attached to the Villa Isola Bella, where Catherine Mansfield, arguably New Zealand's most famous writer, lived and wrote for a time late in her career. I feel it's appropriate for me to be introducing this session, because in 1976, my father Michael King was the seventh Mansfield Fellow, after writers such as Janet Frame and C.K. Stead. He had a wonderful, life-changing, productive time. He met Patrick White. He went to London and met other famous writers. It was a formative time in his life and career. Back then, my father was newly divorced and conveniently single. The 1970s was a time when it was perfectly normal for a male writer to disappear for a year to pursue his art and leave two children behind, a luxury that was really afforded to women then, or now. I was seven when he returned, and he brought me back a hand puppet of Ernie from Sesame Street, so that was all fine. <laughs> Many, many years later, when I was 30 and studying at the IIML, he took me back to Monton. We stayed with then Mansfield fellow Catherine Chidgey and her then partner Greg. We took in some of the sights he remembered so fondly and visited the Villa Isola Bella. It was a special time, and as he died three years later, it couldn't have been more perfect timing. My overwhelming memory from that time is that he drove us around treacherous mountain passes while I screamed, left, 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 Adam, because he was blind in one eye. Which wasn't a problem on New Zealand roads, but it was an unexpected hazard when driving on the right-hand side of the road, where he couldn't see the murderous drop into the abyss below. Tonight, in honour of Catherine... We invite five of the other past fellows to write a letter to Mansfield about their time working by the Mediterranean or about anything they think she should know about the world in 2020. I'm going to introduce our writers all at once and then they'll come up one by one. First up, poet Bill Manhire, who's just released his new collection, Wow, and who held the fellowship in 2004. And as a trustee of the Mansfield Fellowship Trust, will offer some insight into the work that's gone into maintaining it for 50 years while reading his letter. We'll then hear from novelist and playwright Carl Nixon, who held the position in 2017, where he wrote his most recent novel, The Tally Stick. Next, Fiona Farrell, who's just released her new poetry book, Noun, Verb, Etc., and who was a fellow in 1995. Vincent O'Sullivan, whose new book is the biography of artist Ralph Hotteri, The Dark is Light Enough, is the earliest fellow of the bunch from 1994. And finally, our most recent fellow, 
Paula Morris is soon to release a collaboration with photographer Haru Samashima, Shining Land, which explores the life of writer Robin Hyde. Paula is also a co-editor of the new anthology Ko Aotearoa Tato, a creative snapshot of New Zealand after the 2019 Christchurch mosque attacks, which was launched at the festival on Friday. After we hear from the readers, I'll come back and I'll close the event, and afterwards the writers' books will be on sale at the UBS stand in the foyer, and they'll be available to sign them for you. So will you please welcome our first speaker, Bill Manhire. Thank you, Rachel. Curatato. <coughs> uh, uh, back in the 1960s, I'm being a trustee at the moment, <coughs> a New Zealand couple, Celia and Cecil Manson, uh, visited Monton, discovered the Villa Isola Bella, where Catherine Mansfield, at the age, I think, of 31, uh, lived and worked in 1920, 1921. <coughs> and they drew a friend of theirs, Sheila Wynne, uh, a very philanthropical member of the Hannah Shoes family <coughs> into the orbit of their enthusiasm. And I think that of the three, it was Celia Manson who was the main driver of what would happen. You tend to need someone with tenacity as well as vision, uh, and maybe someone with money. Uh, anyway, it all worked, and in the late 60s, there was established an entity called the Wynne Manson Montan Trust. And in 1970, they sent their first fellow to Montan. Uh, over the 50 years then, uh, since then, there have been a number of sponsors. The Electricity Corporation of New Zealand was one for many years. Meridian Energy, New Zealand Post, when it was still New Zealand Post, uh, and had money and delivered letters and all those things. Uh, the New Zealand France Friendship Fund uh, was also a contributor. And then eventually the sponsorship drifted away, and the whole project began to run out of money. And it looked for a time as if the fellowship would be lost. Uh, <clears throat> a man called Richard Cathy, chair of the Catherine Mansfield Trust, then led a three-year fundraising program. <coughs> Sorry, I've been talking too much today. Uh, in concert with the Arts Foundation, who now, God bless them, managed the fellowship, and a serious sum of money was raised. And the good news is <coughs> that the fellowship is now secure for the next 50 years. I'm going to grab a glass of water. I think Catherine Mansfield coughed a lot like this when she was uh, <laughs> in Montan. <coughs> uh, so it's all safe. The first fellow was a man called <coughs> Owen Leeming, who was a poet and a broadcaster. And back in 1962, he had interviewed Catherine Mansfield's three surviving sisters. Uh, and I think those tapes, Vincent will know, are somewhere in the National Library still. Uh, the most recent fellow <coughs> was the Dunedin writer Sue Wooden, except that, of course, she hasn't been able to take up her fellowship because of uh, the thing we all know about. Uh, the hope is that vaccines permitting and lockdowns permitting, she can go to Montan next year. There was to have been a very big 50th anniversary celebration in Montan in late September. Uh, in fact, a whole writers' festival was being set up. Uh, one way or another, there would have been, I think, maybe 10 or so previous fellows there, including Owen Leeming, the first fellow, who was still with us and living in Paris, and, of course, Sue Wooden, and some of the writers who are here today. 
What struck me when I saw the draft program for the events which have now been abandoned <coughs> was how richly New Zealand literature had grown over those 50 years. Uh, in 1970, I think it would have been a not impossible task to read every novel and every book of poetry that had been published over a 12-month period. Now, uh, and it might all have seemed a bit samey, actually, to use a fine piece of critical vocabulary. Uh, uh, I don't know. It was as if our literature then was an instrument that only played a limited number of notes. Uh, now I think there are so many books of such variety and such quality that you wouldn't know where to begin. Catherine Mansfield would probably be astonished if she was at all interested. <coughs> anyway, I'll read my letter to her, which <coughs> includes a piece of poetry. Dear Catherine, I don't know if you were interrupted. If you were, it wouldn't have been in the ways that the various Montan fellows have been interrupted. Everyone who's been there has stories about how the Mansfield room and the person working in it have become a regular stopover on the New Zealand tourist trail. Uh, it wasn't a problem for me. I didn't use the room much at all, mainly because the Villa Isola Bella up above it uh, was being reconfigured into apartments. And strange things like lumps of hose and you know, sprays of concrete were sort of dropping into the yard. But anyone who wants to hunt around uh, in the Arts Foundation website will find a wonderful long chatty poem by the playwright Ken Duncombe, which simply lists all the callers by whose interruptions he thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I'd like to read you the whole poem, but that would take the whole hour probably. But I'll quote you a tiny bit. Uh, he says, Many thought the lucky fellow lived in the villa Isola Bella and came in hopes of strolling around that rather than a peek into her revamped gardener's shed. One asked me, what time do you open? <laughs> so yes, there were lots of interruptions. And as a very ill friend of mine, homebound with multiple sclerosis, once said to me, the uninterrupted life is not worth living. And maybe you felt the same. I may not have worked at the room, Catherine, but it was a remarkable time for me, the first time I'd worked as a proper full-time writer. I wrote most of the poems in a book called Lifted, uh, work that benefited, benefited from time and focus, and perhaps not oddly, but uh, strangely to me, it benefited from memory. I'd thought, of course, that I would produce work full of uh, Mediterranean sunshine and olive trees, but I wrote work full of New Zealand, which is something that you might find familiar. I'm going to read you the first poem I wrote. I've asked permission to read it, uh, and it's in the memory of uh, Michael King, uh, the historian. When we were flying up, my wife and I were flying up to Auckland to make our connection to Europe, we were puzzled for a moment by the number of people on the plane who we knew very well, some of them. And then we quickly realised that they were all heading north for a memorial service for Michael, who had died very suddenly. Uh, the poem I wrote is called A Pottery, and A Pottery in the Coromandel 
is where Michael and his partner Maria lived. And where, to me, Michael always seemed most contented and relaxed. But, as I think people here know, he and Maria died in a particularly terrible car crash, the sort of sudden death that reduces everything to silence somehow. Anyway, I think that what I wanted to do was to give Michael a more gentle and peaceful departure. Uh, I should add that my family often had holidays uh, in a pottery, summer holidays, so those are part of my memories of Michael in this poem. Uh, there's a reference at one point to Peter Walls, who was professor of music at Victoria University, and to Spiro Zavos, the Greek New Zealand writer, who had taught both Michael and Peter at Silverstream. And I think that's perhaps all you need to know. And I'll read the poem. So you have to imagine me in Monton writing this poem in the south of France. A pottery in memory of Michael King. This is the place of posts. A man in a boat is checking his lines. He is out towards the rock at the mouth of the river, clear sky above the ocean, while behind him the estuary is filling with its acres of shine. Once there were a thousand logs on the water, jostling for space across Farikawa, waiting their turn to be rafted out to the ships which waited offshore. January 1990-something, Michael himself pouring the drinks as he showed us the photographs. And then he and Peter Wall sat on the veranda, the balcony, the deck of the double house with its view down over the water, swapping tales about masters at Silverstream, Father X and Father Y and Spiro Zavos, history and music talking together, the vast entertainment of learning. And do you remember? So that again I stop on the footbridge, there are swallows, just to see that everyone's here, and we are. Watching water slide over mud, a boy suddenly lifting an arm to see if the crabs still run to their smudges, and they do. And always at last, everything follows, the walk through pines to the beach, the soft, suspended, hesitating air, and then the great lines of blue and white thunder, and the dotterall small whistle always vanishing, always leading away from the wee scrape of sand where the eggs lay, and still keeping back for another day that desperate broken wing display. Though we, at any rate, would be making no trouble walking on towards Ohui, where we met an American backpacker who pointed up at the high, heavy shuffle of gulls and said, hey, take care up ahead, this is hawk country. A line on the page follows the skyline, like the last light wandering inland from peak to peak until late at night there are stars and there we are, lying flat on our backs up in the bush between harbour and pa to see if the universe is still connecting its dots, and it is. For all of the news was up there, satellites bright in the dark with their chatter of business and love, and star after shooting star, the beautiful wipeout of worlds, whole civilizations, the failings and fallings, and the flickering, steady, and once again flickering, always migrating light. 
He has one Kahawai and two Trevally. Oyster catchers patrol the tide line, pedantic. A tui whirs from Pahutakawa to Pine, enough to be going on with, really. Now, the bad news is here. The good news is nowhere. Everything consoles and nothing. Everything goes under the earth, the old timber and the new. What is memory but all of us listening? Without being precisely sure to whom one owes gratitude, what we want in the end is understanding. And now, I suppose he cuts the motor. Let the tide do the work. And now, there is only the sound of water. Here, in the place of posts, I think I can just make him out. A man in a boat, rowing across the last half mile of twilight. So that's my poem, Catherine, the first piece of writing I did in Montan. And it set a tone for much of the work I would produce there. I led a happy life, but I wrote sad poems. Uh, I have one last thing to tell you about a piece of the happy life. Most fellows, before they go to Montan, talk to previous fellows and get practical advice, sometimes dangerous advice, as much as anything. Uh, but I especially remember Greg O'Brien, who had been in Montan with Jenny Bornholt, urging us to visit Ventimiglia, the small Italian town on the other side of the border. It was satisfyingly untidy, he reckoned. And more important, the alcohol you could buy there was much cheaper. Anyway, Marion and I jumped on the train one day, and we were walking down from the Ventimiglia railway station to the beach when this huge fat rat waddled out of an alleyway and just sauntered across the road in front of us. And when we got back, I sent Greg an email telling him we'd followed his advice, and I have to say I described the rat to him at quite some length. <laughs> and he wrote back with a single short sentence, Oh, to be a rat in Ventimiglia. <laughs> and I'm done. Dear Great Aunt Catherine, sorry that I haven't written to you in a while. Mother tells me that you're keeping well. I'm very glad to hear it. Certainly no one here in New Zealand has forgotten you. Quite the opposite, in fact. Seems that hardly a week goes by without someone mentioning your name. It was enjoyable to spend time with you when I travelled with my family to Monton in May 2018. The children, Alice and Fenton, still speak fondly of our time in France. Just the other day, we were reminiscing about Monton, and Alice recalled the hot day we climbed the high steep hill above the old town to the stepped cemetery with its commanding views of the red and orange roofs and the coastline and the sea. She remembered walking among the tombstones and the family mausoleums, reading the names. It's amazing that so many people from so many places are there. Often, they were looking just as you did, to restore their health in the Mediterranean air. 
Monton has left our family with many memories and stories. I have often recounted to friends how the French bureaucrats in the town hall were completely bemused by my arrival. You'd think that after almost 50 years, they'd be accustomed to New Zealanders turning up and asking for the keys to your writing room, but no, apparently not. <laughs> Each one of us arrives unexpectedly, like a lost pilgrim emerging from the desert. After the initial confusion and administrative bustle, I had to wait for several hours to talk to the correct bureaucrat. Apparently, she was on her lunch break. When she did return, she explained through the fine filter of my wife and daughter's rudimentary French that it would not be possible to officially hand over the keys as the mayor was on holiday. He will be back in just a couple of weeks, possibly three, a month at the most. With emphatic hand gestures, it was explained that this delay was a good thing. It would give my family time to settle in and see the town. Also, it would create enough time for the writing room to be repainted, which had to be done before I was allowed in. You will recall, Catherine, that I was only planning to stay in Monton for three months, so losing the use of the room for a month seemed to me less than ideal. Of course, you were used to this type of thing from the French to this Frenchness. I remember you shrugging when I told you and offering me one of those French expressions of which there are many but which, when loosely translated, all mean, relax, don't sweat it. After a week and several return trips to the town hall to discuss the situation, it was suggested that just possibly I could borrow the key. I could hand it back to the mayor upon his return, now only six weeks away tops. At that point, the mayor could officially present the key back to me and yes, it was conceivable that a painter could possibly be sent to the writing room this very weekend. Voila. And so, merely 10 days after arriving in Monton, I was at work in your writing room, behind the thick walls and the cool shadows at the old desk. With the mostly benevolent ghosts of 47 years of fellows looking over my shoulder, I wrote quickly and without strain producing a first draft of my new novel, which, Catherine, I'm happy to tell you, has recently been published. The copy I posted to you should arrive very soon. I hope you don't find the words I scrawled in the front too cheeky. I eagerly await your feedback. One other thing, and more serious. You may recall that I walked to and from the writing room most days through the old town and past the marina. As spring turned to summer, each day was warmer than the last. I got into the habit of stopping for a swim at the stony beach near the covered market in the afternoon on my way back to the apartment. Enjoying your less intense European sun, I allowed myself to tan progressively until by the time we left Monton in August, I was a darker brown than I'd been since I was a teenager. It was my GP, the appropriately named Dr. Hunter, who about a year after our return, identified the mole above my right knee. This is not funny. Uh, <laughs> as, as potentially problematic. <laughs> um, it was the size of a pea, smooth, uniform, but dark. Of course, I'd noticed it, but didn't think it had changed in any way, so I hadn't paid it any attention. 
Dr. Hunter removed the mole himself at the medical center quickly and relatively painlessly. He would send it away to the lab for analysis. He would let me know. When you receive a phone call from your GP at nine o'clock on a Thursday evening, it's never good news. They don't phone up at that hour to chat. The mole was now officially a melanoma, although apparently a slow-growing one. His expression, slow-growing, made me think of lichen and stalagmites in the dark. To make sure that the skin cancer had not spread down into my leg and beyond, a larger part of the area where it had taken root would need to be removed. How much larger, I asked, staring at my bedroom wall. About the size of a golf ball, he said. I won't alarm you with details, Auntie. Needless to say, it's not overly pleasant lying on an operating table staring up at the ceiling with your lower leg, or lower thigh numb from several deep jabs of local anaesthetic while a surgeon goes full merchant of Venice on you with a scalpel. I tried not to look, but I couldn't unhear my pound of flesh landing in the stainless steel dish <laughs> that the nurse was holding out. You'll be interested to hear that as I lay there, I thought of Monton. I remembered the beach and the daily walk to and from the writing room with my dark mole exposed below my shorts to the sun. I should have known, of course, it was the same sun we have here and when, wherever you are in the world, She's a treacherous bastard. Excuse my French. I also thought of the cemetery high above the town where so many people who came to Monton seeking a cure for their illness instead ended up being buried. It's hard to say for sure what the connections are in this story or if there is a meaning to be found in what happened to me. Maybe all I can conclude to you, Aunt Catherine, is that Monton is beautiful, I'm still very glad I went, and that life is unpredictable and as you of all people are well aware, always far too short. Warm regards, Carl. I'm awfully sorry. I'm just listening to you. I haven't done my assignment properly. <laughs> I haven't read the topic properly. Um, but yes, we went to Monton in 1995 and um, it was wonderful personally um, as a time to get to know a new partner and a new relationship and to get to know my two daughters who turned up, we thought temporarily, for a week or two, um, but promptly moved in and stayed for the duration. So we had people rolling through the door from nightclubs in <laughs> Nice um, at all hours of the day and night. Anyway, it was lovely. Um, um, I wrote stories. I wrote a short poem about swimming um, at the foot of the street where we were living. Um, there was a panty liner which was floating in the water when we first arrived and which stayed in the water in the same position, roughly, um, undiminished throughout the entire time we were there. And I wrote a little ditty which started, Oh, nothing could be finer than to be a panty liner on the Côte d'Azur. And I won't go on, but anyway, that, so that's my Monton experience. So I'm very sorry, I've done this all wrong. But um, anyway, this is what I wrote in response. Woof, woof. 
ปามือแยกแยกแยก There's a section in At the Bay, Mansfield's great evocation of a New Zealand summer, where the children are gathered in the wash house. They're playing a word game, Animal Snap, moo, hee haw. It's late in the day, darkness is gathering, and Mansfield does this wonderful thing. She makes a little theatre, a luminous little theatre. Of these children playing, as darkness falls around them, and you read the story in the full knowledge of the actual darkness surrounding its creation, that the writer was dry, dying slowly, inexorably, and in terror of tuberculosis, and that she was writing the story to give a kind of fictive existence to a beloved younger brother who had died. Demonstrating a faulty grenade in a filthy, pointless war, and here we are, gathered in this room, and it's probably one of the larger gatherings in the world right now. No more than 50 permitted in New York, no more than six in London, none at all till recently in Melbourne, and there's a profound unreality to this. There's a kind of luminous little theatre. So, in the surrounding darkness, the question I would ask Catherine, if she were to materialise here, is the same I ask myself. All this writing, and reading, and speaking, all this communication—what's it for? This past week, I've been deluged by words, as we all are. Reports of road accidents, analysis of an election, texts, phone calls, a rather bad novel, a couple of old men debating something called socialist medicine, while 27 million of their fellow citizens without insurance cross their fingers and hope not to catch a plague. But the most dispiriting words I read were about satellites. A strange individual called Elon Musk and his company SpaceX. Launched another 60 satellites into the Earth's orbit last Saturday, bringing the number launched so far by the company to around 900. Over the next few weeks, dozens more are, are to be sent aloft. Each one is the size of a flattened car, with a solar panel attached. They reflect light. They gleam. You can look up tonight as you walk home, and maybe you'll see them chugging overhead. Long trains of light, like distant railway carriages. Astronomers are objecting, but the plan is to have 42,000 of them in our night sky by 2027. It won't be the Milky Way; it'll be a motorway, visible from every point on the globe. And what are they for? So that I can use my bloody phone, so I can access the internet. Phone home, communicate, woof woof woof, moo bar boink. Trashing our night sky will also make Mr. Musk billions of dollars. All this chatter, all these words, as aquifers are drained and the rivers that are the glory of this region are turned to dust and milk powder, and across the planet forests burn, species are exterminated, insects die, and their nameless billions. 
Beaches across our beautiful blue Pacific are composed of plastic particles. The lakes at the edge of the city are sterile or toxic, and women are advised not to drink the tap water or risk miscarrying their babies. And we read the signs, avoid the swimming hole, stop the dog from splashing, do our best, vote in people at the last election who at least might take this seriously. But there it is, the darkness, broken by little trails of light, chugging over our heads, carrying all these words and blocking out the stars. And I don't know what to do in the face of it all. What do you do as a writer, as a reader, who's someone who loves this artifact we've created with our dazzling human brains, this wonderfully nuanced version of woof, woof, bah, oink, this beautiful thing called language, what do we do? What's it for? Mansfield, a hundred years ago, seems to have felt more certain. She was shoring up beauty, word by word, in the face of terror. And in the event, that terror passed, though not in time to save her. The war that claimed her brother and millions of others did come to an end. Not as I was taught in school because some wise old men in a train in France decided that enough was enough, but because people rioted in Russia, in Berlin, and right here, just down the street in April 1918, when a crowd, mostly of women, according to the press, stormed the King Edward barracks, where their men were being marshaled to march to the railway station and embarkment for France. In their big hats and shabby boots, the women hooted, jeered, dragged their men back from the assembly area, then pursued the mayor and the military commanders down Montreal Street. Only half of the enlisted men made it to the train. Disgraceful scenes, thundered the press. It was our version, our New Zealand version, our Christchurch version, of the storming of the Winter Palace. And that was the kind of thing that drove back the darkness of war. The disease, too, that killed Mansfield, that, too, was defeated by human agency. It had run rampant for over a century in the industrial squalor of Europe and America and spread out across the world, here, too, to the islands of the Pacific. Millions died, though science was on its trail. Ernst Koch discovered the bacillus, that tiny silvery rod that he said was so very beautiful when he finally found it. And in 1944, another persistent scientist, Al Schatz, an underpaid intern at Rutgers, discovered a control in the throat of a chicken, the organism that made it possible for me and my fortunate post-war generation to line up for our vaccinations. And the darkness, too, receded. Woof, woof, hee-haw. And here we are yet again, surrounded by darkness, but greater, I think, more pervasive, as 42,000 satellites transmitting all our words chug over our heads, and I don't know what to say or what to write in the face of this. Beauty seems so little in the face of this relentless destruction, this insistence on our own extinction. But this week, I went to see a play. It wasn't a great play. It wasn't Shakespeare or Chekhov. It was my granddaughter's school's 
end-of-year production. Those extraordinary people, primary school teachers, had managed to get 183 children on stage, all of them in handmade costumes, the little five-year-olds in paper wings as piwaka-waka, the year twos with wonky cardboard kiwi beaks attached to their foreheads, the bigger kids in cool outfits and a bit of makeup. There was song and dance and a script the children had written themselves with their teachers. And the script was about, well, it was about the darkness. It was about anxiety. The anxieties these children, our children, our grandchildren are feeling right now about bushfires and extinction and plague and not being able to play with your friends or having to stay home for weeks and not being able to visualise the future. It was called Hindsight 2020. The plot was that a group of kids from 2040, like the children in Mansfield's story, but this time wearing lots of glitter and silver foil, which they do in the future, travel in a cardboard carton phone box back to 2020, where they meet a whole lot of other kids who are worrying about the extinction of all those little kiwi with their cardboard beaks. They're worried about this thing called COVID. My granddaughter played Jacinda Ardern, and her friend Lewis was Ashley, both of them delivering the COVID briefing for the day. Kiora Koto. And the thing about this play, the wonderful thing, was that it offered hope. The kids from the future were able to tell the kids from the present that their anxieties were all taken care of. COVID, this was my favourite, for example, had mutated, and it had jumped species, and it attacked not humans, but stoats and weasels and ferrets. <laughs> So all the birds were safe, and the Kiwis danced about a bit randomly, it has to be admitted, singing, in the forest, the mighty forest, the Kiwi hunts tonight. And, and then the whole school was on stage singing Purayane loudly and happily, and it was wonderful. The words, the play had done what all plays should do, what Greek drama did at the start. It offered catharsis. And maybe it's just wishful thinking, it's just a comforting story to tell our children and our grandchildren, but maybe it's not, and maybe there is a truth in those words, that there's still an element of control, of choice. So what's it for, I ask, to us all gathered here in the wash house, playing our word games? Maybe it's just comfort, distraction, as we're herded by vicious, terrible people toward our own extinction, Maybe it's what we do while we wait for a cure, a solution. Maybe it's just habit. But when I see those faces singing, waving to their mums and dads, their kiwi beaks falling off sideways, my granddaughter waving her Jacinda folder, well, I hope for more. I hope that the words we use, this great capacity we have for language, can mount a resistance that we can shore up beauty against the dark, because I think that's what it's for. Moo, bar, oink, woof, woof.
Well, right. Um, dear Catherine, well, here I am writing to Monton and Houses for timing. This afternoon, and you can check it if you want to, it's exactly this afternoon, 100 years since you wrote from the Villa Isola Bella how life doesn't always go along as we'd like it to. As you say, I've had moments when it has seemed to me that this wasn't what my little kingdom ought to be like. Now, it isn't for us altogether either, with a few more problems than you'd have thought of, but your letter is such a good one for a writer to read over again. The business that interests all of us are trying to get things right. How dead accurate it is when you write in your own letter, I falsify slightly. I can't help it. It is all so difficult. That challenge that's never really been solved, how to be dead level with ourselves. We're even a bit embarrassed when you tell us that if there's a weakness in our writing, it is in ourselves as well. When you talk about the tide of barbarism that flows over us and in on us, I think you mean pretty much what we do when we feel forces larger than ourselves seem to reduce us more and more. It was getting over the war between nations in your case. It is what to do about our own war against so much that sustains us that happens to be ours. Yours was the generation that first clearly saw that our problems aren't just personal anymore, although it is the adjective personal that power most loathes. But it is the one that most defines us. It's the word that says, no, we won't accept decay. We won't go along with others speaking for us, which brings us back, of course, to writing, which is that one place where there is total freedom, whatever those who think they know better try to tell us. <clears throat> now, there's no one, Catherine, who got that across more than you did, who called experience exactly as you saw it, agreeing with Chekhov that no writer wants to graze with a herd, that the business of writing is to squeeze the slave from one's soul. So how many of your phrases flash into our minds like signaling mirrors? Never you say, give up the darling wish of our heart for a thousand little wishes. Your splendid advice to never lower a mark uh, never to lower our mask unless we've got another mask beneath it. Or the stubborn certainty to stick to our own conception of form that we all crave as writers. Whether we're much good at it or not. I like to remember that detail that survives in Middle Mu Middleton Murray's memory of you reading a new story that you had just given to him while you did your hair at the dressing table. He made some casual remark about your punctuation and after a long silence, looking up to see you glaring at him in the mirror, 
telling him through a mouthful of hairpins, don't you bloody tell me about commas. <laughs> you won't mind my admiring that almost as much as I do your stories. And all those little details too that make us still seem only weeks from each other rather than a century. Your saying of literary folk, how they go round with razors in their socks all the time. And not a great deal, I think, has changed on that front. Put two poets in a room together, and 20 minutes later, a third one is carried out dead. <laughs> you might be surprised that troubled authors no longer go to sanatoriums but creative writing causes that, prov <laughs> that provide artificial lungs of another kind. And how your irreverence is a critical gift that we can so sorely do with. I was thinking this morning how during the war, when Murray was such a sad sack in his very safe job in Whitehall, you said how when you got on a bus, a wounded soldier or a pregnant woman always stood up for Murray. <laughs> and you know what else I'd like to tell you? That sprinkled here and there through your hundreds of letters and in the reviews that you wrote, feeling like death but needing the money, you turned out the best literary criticism anyone from your own country has managed to do. A spider's eye for accuracy, a devastating honesty, a perception matched by your marvellous phrasing. I like to imagine sometimes that you're back even for a few months as a literary editor of stuff. <laughs> the wreckage might be considerable, <laughs> but the sun would shine the clearer for it and we'd know what decent writing was. So a hundred years again this afternoon to your writing or rather watching little girls in Monton wrapped up to the eyes run by carrying a bouquet of chrysanthemums for it is La Toussaint, All Saints Day. I know my letter is supposed to tell you about us, but never mind, I'd rather think of you sitting there in the villa, as tonight you will dream what seems to me one of the great poignant images of death, and tomorrow you will write it down. You're in a crowd where a woman shouted at you and called you a femme marquée, a damaged woman, and you escaped into a theatre where a play had just begun. The theatre was small and packed. Suddenly, you say, the people began to speak too slowly, to mumble. They looked at each other stupidly. One by one, they drifted off the stage, and very slowly, a black iron curtain was lowered. Very slowly, silently, the people in the audience got up 
and move towards the doors and stole away. A white-faced man looked over his shoulder and trying to smile, he said, the heavens have changed already. There are six moons. Then I realized that our earth had come to an end. <clears throat> and I can't think of any New Zealand writer that gets within, you know, sort of a stone's throw, or writers anywhere much, of such a marvellous premonition of death done just so very lightly as she records that dream. And we see there how closely life and writing come together. The courage of one, the remarkable clarity of the other. And at times it's difficult, Catherine, to hear or see you straight out and plain, though the, through the buzzing of the academic hives and the flickers of critical fashion. But one thing which never changes, you made yourself utterly on your own terms and every minute counted. So, soir sage, happy All Souls Day tomorrow. What's a hundred years? Dear KM, I'm a stranger to you, often a stranger to myself. You may think of me actually as a stalker because I've read your letters and journals and notebooks where it's supposed to be private. Recently I wrote to someone and that person extracted a few sentences and sent them to someone else to cast me in a bad light. My first thought was how despicable. But it's inevitable. The words we write can always be used for and against us. A week ago on Twitter, don't ask, one of your letters was quoted, something you wrote to your cousin Sylvia Payne the year you turned 18, the year your parents dragged you back to New Zealand from London. Would you not like to try all sorts of lives? That's what you wrote to Sylvia. Writing, you said, made that possible. One can impersonate so many people. This is the joy of writing fiction, I think. We write about people who are not us and perhaps live in times and places we have never and can never experience ourselves. And even when we write true stories, we adopt guises, don't we? So, last year, I infiltrated the Villa Isola Bella, almost a century after you lived there, both of us are ghosts of that place now, that chalky house by the train tracks. For you, it was just another station of the cross, I think. For me, it was a place to hide. You were upstairs with a view of the sea, a big table, a cut glass inkstand. But like all my predecessors on the Mansfield Fellowship, I was downstairs in the studio, or the memorial, as locals call it. 
I thought of it as a cave, cool and whitewashed, magical. I arrived in winter and left in summer when weeds sprouted through the white gravel. Every morning I made the 10-minute walk to the villa down Aristide beyond, and most days I left at dusk when the studio grew chilly. The late sun streaked the cliffs with rust. The houses on the north side of the road basked like giant oranges. The Italian border was just steps away from Supre, the building where we stayed. When you lived there, there were two villas on the site, but they're long gone. The view is pretty much the same, a garden, the sea, the train tracks, an old Roman road that's now a grassy lane. My husband Tom and I could walk across the border in five minutes. We'd say buongiorno to the armed Italian guards in their jaunty alpine hats, en route to the liquor store frequented by everyone in Garavon, or to the cafe a little further up the hill. Sometimes, when we had visitors, we'd hire a car. In the mornings, it was covered in a fine red dust, blown across the sea from the Sahara. When my niece stayed, we drove to the market at San Remo. On the way back that afternoon, the French guards stopped us to check the boot of the car for contraband. We'd been warned by locals not to buy fake Chanel bags at Ventimiglia Markets, because the French officials would not only confiscate them, they would fine us and burn the bags there on the spot before our eyes. We lived in fear of such a bonfire, though, of course, I would quite like to have witnessed someone else's. <laughs> this is the cowardice of the fiction writer, perhaps. We are voyeurs. We are selfish people, greedy for material, greedy for more time, always more time. I was working in the studio one day, late spring, I'd say, Two English people squeaked through the gate, crunched over the gravel. There's a plaque outside talking all about you, listing what you wrote while you were in Montau. The woman kept exclaiming over Daughters of the Late Colonel. Then she said she had never read any of Mansfield's novels. They knocked on the door, but I didn't open it. <laughs> I don't think you would have opened it either. Now, in France, we met three Williams, some of them will be familiar to my fellow writers here. One, William Rubenstein collected us from the airport and drove us over hills and through tunnels to Garavon. He runs a French language school in Nice. He was our minder, our affable host. He threw parties and dinners. His wife, young and Japanese, or should I say younger and Japanese, is called Mimosa, like the blossoms that bloomed when we first arrived. The second William is William Waterfield. His gardens are famous in the south of France, Jardin Clos du Perronnet, designed by his uncle. His grandparents bought the villa in 1912. William doesn't think you would have met them, even though they lived just a few minutes away. He suspects you would have been rather too bohemian for them. They had to abandon Garavan because there was another world war, I'm sorry to tell you. The house survived more or less, but they did not. They ended their lives in a town in the Pyrenees, terrified of what would come. This reminds me of another writer, four years younger than you, who found himself stuck and stateless at the beginning of the Second World War. His name was Walter Benjamin. He tried to escape by crossing the border from France to Spain, and after he was turned away, ended his own life. In a poem, his friend Bertolt Brecht 
another war exile, wrote, then at last, brought up against an impassable frontier, you passed, they say, a passable one. These days, the Waterfields Villa is split into apartments with William and his wife on the expansive ground floor. They only got married about 10 years ago, though they're quite old. And she is a very rich American divorcee. So the expat crowd in Monton stage whisper that he married her for money to maintain the garden. We spend a lot of time with William, drinking strong tea and eating slices of tart tropezienne. On our first full day in Monton, he drove us in an erratic way to the market in the old town. When he was reversing his car with great trepidation out of a parking space, he made beeping noises the way some cars do these days. Beep, beep, beep. His letters to me were written entirely in capital letters. Tom says that William types the way he drives. The third William we met only once. He's the grown-up son of our landlady, Catherine Walter. Now, Catherine has known William Waterfield since they were young. Expat gossip says they were romantically involved, and for that reason, she is not popular with the new wife. Catherine invited us up to her flash modern apartment on Boulevard de Garavant to drink Prosecco. Her husband is British and looks like an old sea tar. His main home is Geneva, where I think he's writing a book about watches. He warned me about the writing room at the Villa East de la Bella. He said it was dark and would not inspire me. <laughs> I didn't tell him that I don't believe in inspiration. Anyway, Catherine's son, Will, who lives in London, told us about his ongoing feud with a local butcher in Garavon. Every time Will went in to buy a baguette, which costs one euro, the butcher insisted on charging him an extra five cents for a sack. But when Will's female cousin was visiting Monton and bought bread at the shop, she was only charged one euro. One night, when Will was staggering home back from town, drunk with friends, he spotted the butcher walking along with two women, or as Will described them, probably prostitutes. He shouted at the butcher in French, a baguette is only one euro. The next time he passed the butcher's shop, the butcher accosted him in the street and said, do that again and I'll smash your face in. So, KM, I suspect the other Monton fellows writing to you this weekend will be more lyrical, more profound than me. Wherever I go, I seem to drift into a mist of silliness, seeking out nonsense, the absurd. Still, I do try to make sense of things as well. There are so many lives I can never live. I can only observe them or imagine them. I can only write them down. At the cafe just across the border, Tom and I were sitting one afternoon drinking an aperitivo. A family of four walked past, going from Italy to France. Unlike everyone at the cafe, they were black. They carried suitcases and wore winter coats, even though the day was very warm. From our seat on the terrace, we could see when the Italian guards stopped them. There was a long conversation, an argument we could see but not hear. A white woman wearing the bib of an international aid agency arrived. She walked them back up the hill, back into Italy, to her car. They were not permitted to cross the bridge to France. 
For them, it was an impassable frontier. Other people on the terrace were watching too, and one man got up and crossed the road. He approached the adolescent daughter holding out money. She looked confused, and then her parents shook their heads. They would not take the money. The man walked back to the cafe looking embarrassed. Everyone on the terrace went back to smoking and drinking. Whenever Tom and I walked back across the border with our bottles of gin and packets of rum-filled kunesi, the French guards never stopped us. When we got off the train at Garavon after a visit to Ventimiglia Market, the French police never stopped us. We are not black. Anyone black on the train had to show their papers. The bathrooms in the train were locked between Ventimiglia and Garavon, which is the first stop in France, so no one could hide in them. The police walked through every carriage, pulling people off, even people who said, I am French, I was born in France. Once someone made a break for it, that was exciting. Uh, they were tackled in long grass further up the tracks. On that day I mentioned, when we drove with my niece back from San Remo, when the French guards stopped to check the boot of our car, they weren't just looking for contraband. They were making sure we weren't smuggling someone across the border. One day, on my way home from the studio, I passed Garamond Station as usual. A train from Italy had been sitting there for some time and was about to pull out. I lingered to watch the gendarmes walk down the steps from the platform and head towards the vans, escorting a man they'd removed from the train. He was young, black, tall, carrying some kind of branded bag. Maybe he was one of the bag salesmen we saw in the Ventimiglia market. They were driving him back to Italy. I watched all this, then I walked home to Supre up the hill. The late sun streaked the cliffs with rust. The houses on the north side of the road basked like giant oranges. I wanted to stay in Monton forever, but wishes, as you know, seldom come true. With love from me, PM. Thank you so much to all our readers. Um, we've, we've heard about grief poems, journals, racism, Elon Musk, melanomas, anxiety, singing Kiwis, punctuation, dead poets, creative writing courses, imagined lives, and flaming fake Chanel handbags. I just wonder what Catherine would make of all of it. Um, along with Brave Worlds and Letters to Autotahi, one thing that this festival's produced is some really wonderful new writing, so thank you so much. Um, I'm thinking about how nice it would be to jump on a plane to travel to the south of France right now and to have the time to dedicate to writing and thinking and swimming in the Mediterranean. So thank you for all your beautiful letters and insights. Can we have a round of applause, please, for the writers?